Good morning, saints. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25 is our text this morning as we conclude our series through the Gospel of John. John 21, verses 15 through 25. I do now invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show how, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and said, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you through your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks for your perfect provision, which we've already heard of this morning for sending your only begotten Son into the world to save sinners like me and like those in my hearing. Lord, this text reminds us of how weak we are. This text reminds us that we need the Good Shepherd to lead us. For all we like sheep have gone astray. 
And so we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have a good shepherd. And it's our prayer this morning that through the preaching of your word and by the power of your spirit, you would help us to know and love that good shepherd more fully and respond accordingly during our time. Have your way in each and every one of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's bittersweet, brothers and sisters. We have made it to the end of the Gospel of John. When we started this sermon series on September 6th of 2020, we were meeting outside under tents, if you recall. And here we are nearly two years later. And during that time, once unfamiliar faces have come to our church and have now become family. And also during that time, many of our convictions have deepened concerning various things. However, it is my prayer. It is my prayer that one conviction, the key conviction, the conviction that is primary for all true Christians, it's my prayer that that conviction has deepened more than any other. And the prayer for that deepened conviction is that everyone in my hearing more deeply believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Certainly, this is the purpose of the Gospel of John. He tells us explicitly in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And we have been witnesses of Christ as we have received the Apostle John's eyewitness testimony. We remember in the prologue, those first 18 verses of the book of John, that in the beginning was the Word, and that the Word was with God, and that the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. We remember that all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Remember that in Him was life, and the life was and is the light of men. That that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness have not, has not grasped it. We remember that there was a man sent from God whose name was John, that man being John the Baptist. And he came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. No, John the Baptist was not the light, but he came for one specific purpose, and that was to bear witness about the light, that true light which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But praise God, because all who did receive him, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, God gave the right for them to become children, children of God. Who are born, not by the will of man, nor 
of the flesh, nor of the blood, but who were born of God, we remember that Jesus himself says, ye must be born again. We remember that the word became flesh and that the flesh that was the word dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son of God. We remember that from him came grace upon grace. For he was full of grace and truth. And John the Apostle tells us that John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He, comes, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from him, from his fullness, from the fullness of Christ himself, what have we received? Grace upon grace. For yes, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one, no one has ever seen God besides the only God, God the Son, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. We have observed the manner in which Jesus, God the Son, has made God known as we have wa walked our way through this very gospel. We saw the Son of God presented as he performed various signs, and those signs pointed to his godness, if you will. We saw the Son of God prepare his disciples for their mission prior to his crucifixion. We saw the Son of God coming to his own, being opposed by his very own. Though they should have received, received him, they received him not. We saw the Son of God's passion while he was preparing his disciples for what would be their mission, he himself was on a mission. And he completed that mission. After having lived for his people, he then died for and was raised for his people. And again, these things that we've read, that we've studied for nearly two years, were recorded for one primary purpose that you might believe or continue to believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ such that you might have life. Real, genuine, authentic, abundant, everlasting life in his name such that you might right, rightly relate to God and rightly relate to yourself and rightly relate to others. In other words, if you understand and have come to believe the truth contained in the gospel of John, then you are a true disciple in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question for us is what now? What now? How does John wish to conclude this gospel? What is it that the Holy Spirit wants to leave you with as we come to a close? I've entitled this sermon, The Christian Life.
in view of the resurrected Christ. The Christian life in view of the resurrected Christ. And I've entitled this sermon in that way because that is exactly how the Spirit of God through the pen of John concludes this book. Primarily through Jesus' interaction with Peter. So that brings us to the main idea of this morning's sermon. It's in your outline. In this morning's text, we will find three virtues. Three virtues that are increasingly recognizable in the life of a true disciple of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who has obtained these three virtues has done so by means of the saving and enabling grace of the triune God, such that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit receive all the honor and all the glory and all the adoration. So what are these three virtues? Number one is a love for Christ. Number two, obedience to Christ. Number three, trust in Christ. Love for Christ, obedience to Christ, and trust in Christ are the three virtues that are increasingly recognizable in the life of a true disciple of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Let us begin with virtue number one, love for Christ. Look back in the text with me at verses 15 through 17, please. Again, the word of God reads, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus is going to ask Peter a few questions. And verse 9 of this very same chapter gives us some very important information about this breakfast. Look with me at chapter 21, verse 9. It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire... And place with fish laid out on it and bread. You see, while these fishermen were trying but could not catch fish of their own, Jesus was already on the shore preparing a fish breakfast for these disciples. The implication is this is that Jesus is their provider. But for our purposes this morning, we want to hone in on that word, charcoal fire. It is one word in the Greek, and this one word only appears two times in the entirety of the New Testament, and both of those occurrences are, you guessed it, in the book of John. A charcoal fire. If you have ever been around a charcoal fire or a campfire, then you know that it has a distinct smell. And if you were wearing a jacket around that campfire and you put that jacket away into your closet, you would likely find that the next time you went to that closet to get that charcoal or to get that uh, jacket was smelling of that same charcoal or camp fire. 
And when you pull that jacket out, what happens immediately, you're reminded of the campfire that you were around. And feelings of nostalgia begin to arise. Perhaps you, were, you remember who you were with. Perhaps you remember what you were doing. Perhaps you remember what you were eating. Perhaps you remember the conversations that you were having. Well, the last time we saw this word, charcoal fire, prior to our text was in chapter 18. And Peter was asked a question. Turn a few pages over to John chapter 18, please. Jesus has just been arrested and he is on his Jewish trial, if you will. And though the disciples scattered, Simon Peter is following at some distance, seeing what the Lord Jesus Christ is up to. Look at chapter 18, verse 17. It says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Peter would end up denying the Lord Jesus Christ three times. But back in our text, Peter is once again near a charcoal fire, and this time he will be asked three questions concerning Christ. Many commentators have suggested that Peter's threefold denial of the Lord Jesus Christ is in part or at least correlates to Jesus' three questions to Peter in our text. And the presence of this charcoal fire makes that suggestion, at least in my mind, viable. As Peter smelled that fire, certainly he would have remembered some measure, some inkling of his denial of Christ. What was he feeling? What was he thinking? The text doesn't tell us, and I'm not going to speculate. What's interesting is that the Lord Jesus Christ has already appeared twice to his disciples. But up until this point, the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't been addressed. Peter has seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is excited to see the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, he jumps out of the boat and swims to him. He's so excited. Yet, something needs to be restored. He loves Christ, yet he has denied Christ prior to the crucifixion. However, Jesus, as the good shepherd of his sheep, does not seek to ruin Peter in this instance. Rather, he seeks to restore Peter. Concerning these questions that Jesus asked, I love what Edward Klink says. He said, the questions Jesus asks do not seek to take life but to restore it. Hear me now. For the person, person asking the question has already paid the price with his own life. Praise the Lord. We could say that Peter's courage or lack thereof is not the ground upon which Peter can be restored or reinstated 
to discipleship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important for you to get. I don't have appropriate words to utter it. But may the spirit of the living God teach you this truth. Peter, his courage does not matter. But Peter, his Christ, is the only ground upon which he can be restored to a right standing in a right relationship with God himself. I love it. Peter's courage wavers. Yet on Christ, the solid ground, he must stand. And so it is with you and me. If you have denied Christ, if you have doubted the Lord Jesus, if your courage has ever wavered, then please know that Christ alone is the sole basis upon which you can be restored to discipleship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And please hear these questions afresh. Jesus asked, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Let's deal with the more than these before the do you love me. The question is what or who does the term these refer to? There's really two major views here. One view is this. The question is this. Does does Peter love Jesus more than the fishing lifestyle? Here you have these 153 fish laying on the seashore. And Christ refers to them, do you love me more than these? Do you love me enough to follow me where I say to go rather than going back to your own old way of life? That's one view possible. The other view is this, does Peter love Jesus more than the other disciples? Does Peter love Jesus more than the other disciples? I believe along with most commentators that Jesus is sitting before Peter and he's asking Peter if he loves him more than the other disciples. I think that's what makes the most sense in this context. However, that doesn't really settle the matter. Because that question can still be understood in two ways. One way is this. Does Peter love Jesus more than these disciples love Jesus? That's one way to understand that question. Or number two, does Peter love Jesus more than Peter loves these other disciples? That's another way to understand the question. And either one of these questions seems possible to me. Either sense of the question is a possibility we can't exactly be sure. On one hand, we remember that Peter did say that he would never fall away, didn't he? He said, although the other disciples may fall away, I will never fall away. We see that in Matthew chapter 26, verse 33 and verse 35. We see that in Luke 22, verse 33. We also see that in John 13, 37. So Jesus could be asking Peter if he loved him more than these other disciples loved him. But on the other hand, in the upper room discourse, there was a heavy emphasis on the disciples' love for one another. So Jesus could be asking Peter if he loved him more than he loved these other disciples. 
Peter seemingly does have love for his fellow disciples. He seems to lead them in some way. He seems to, to be willing to live life with them. And so it could be the case that Jesus is saying, I take precedent. You must love me more than you love these disciples. I think a decision is hard here. I lean toward the first sense of this question. That is, Jesus is asking Peter if he loved him more than these other disciples loved him. And I take that view in part because Peter's reply to the question. Peter is no longer willing to indicate that he loves Jesus more than these. Rather, Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter's answer is emphatic. And I love this. Notice that Peter's answer is grounded in Jesus' knowledge rather than his own knowledge. It's grounded in Jesus' knowledge rather than anything in himself. That's a good place to be. Peter knows that Jesus is the one who said, I know my own. Peter also understands that the thrust of Jesus' question, it's about Peter's love for Jesus. That's the primary emphasis rather than a comparison of that love with others. As a matter of fact, in our text, it's only the first question that Jesus says, do you love me more than these? The next two times, the more than these is dropped off, and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? And all three times that Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, Peter answered in the affirmative. Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And the third time we are given some detail, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And the answer changes ever so slightly. He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. I would say that Peter is becoming a decent theologian, amen? It's good and right to say you know everything, Lord, and you know that I love you. And although Peter was initially sorrowed by Jesus' questioning, Notice that Jesus not once corrects Peter. Jesus seemingly takes Peter's answer at face value. After all, he does know all things. But notice that Jesus responds to Peter's responses. Jesus responds by means of a command or even a commission. He said, first, feed my lambs. He said, second, tend my sheep. He said, third, feed my sheep. This is the good shepherd who is going to physically depart in a short while via the ascension from the, his flock. However, the one good shepherd who has one flock cares for that flock. And he cares for, for that flock by leaving behind and commissioning under shepherds to care for that flock in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 16. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the fathers know me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Praise God. He continues, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ 
went to the cross. And he died. And he was buried. And he rose to secure the salvation for those very sheep that he speaks of in John chapter 10. He would then commission his immediate disciples to care for those sheep. That is to care for the church. But he would not leave them alone. He would send the paraclete, the helper, the helper, the comforter, that is the Holy Spirit, to lead and to guide and to direct his under-shepherds as they were to care for the flock. Those first under-shepherds were the apostles. And those apostles who went on to oftentimes be elders themselves would appoint other elders to care for the flock of God. And then those other elders would appoint other elders to continue to care for the flock of God. And on and on and on. And here we are nearly 2,000 years later. And the Lord is doing the same thing. And he said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not overcome it. And Peter was, yes, an apostle, but also an elder. Listen, it was him who wrote, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then he charges those elders. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ himself, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so my fellow elders and shepherds, or any aspiring elders and shepherds, let me just take a, a couple moments out of this sermon to specifically and directly address you. Notice what Jesus said to Peter, and by extension to us, First, he said, feed my lambs. Then he said, tend my sheep. Then he said, feed my sheep. First, let us always remember that the souls who are under our care are first and foremost Christ's sheep. We are to care for them as such, following the example of Christ in the presence or among his precious people. Second, let us take note of the range of Christ's flock. The little lambs, all the way to the mature sheep. We are to care for them all in the context of this local church or the local church in which you serve. And lastly, let us take note of how we are to care for them. We are to feed the lambs and sheep. We understand that that means we are to supply the very word of God, that they might feast on the word of God, that they might be nourished by the word of God, that the flock of God who are under our care might be a healthy flock. We feed the word of God as we preach and as we counsel and as we speak in various settings. It is the word of God that is the food that we need. Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But notice this as well. Not only do we feed, but we also tend his sheep. The word tend here literally means to shepherd or to be on watch for the flock of God. 
It is one thing to be a preacher. Would to God everyone in this room be a preacher and a proclaimer of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it, it is another thing to be a pastor. It is one thing to be a preacher. It is another thing to be a pastor. Yes, preaching is part of pastoring, but preaching is not pastoring. Preaching is not shepherding in and of itself. I think I speak for all of my fellow pastors when I say preaching is far easier than pastoring is. But oh, but oh the joy that it is to care for the flock of God under the authority of Christ himself and his word and in the power of the spirit of the living God. There's no other way that I want to spend my life. Praise the Lord that Christ cares for his church by providing shepherds who are to feed and to tend for the flock of God. So my fellow pastors in this room, my aspiring pastors, those who want to be a pastor in the future, it is my prayer that we might shepherd the flock of God among us, such as God would have us, such that God would be glorified, and such that his sheep would be benefited. Now let me take a step back for a moment and address the entire congregation. First, I simply want to commend you to your pastor's care. A shepherd knows his sheep. Humans aren't exactly sheep. You're a little bit better at hiding things. A shepherd knows his sheep. It, it, there's no such thing as shepherding. There's no such thing as pastoral ministry if there's not authentic, vulnerable relationship. I love what the Apostle Paul said. When he goes to the Thessalonians, what does he say? He says, not only did we share with you the very word of God, but we also shared our very own selves, our very own lives. Fellowship is a sharing of self one with another. I'll take myself out of the mix so I may not boast. I'll speak of my fellow five pastors. There are no other men on the face of this earth that I would want to care for my soul. Men who will weep with me. Men who will cry with me. Men who will walk with me. Men who will rebuke me and exhort me and preach and teach and correct. I commend those five men to care for your soul. You have to share your life. You have to share your life. Number two is this. Yes, you may not be a pastor, but this text has so much to offer. Has so much to offer you. Well, the context or the content of these verses have explicit application to shepherds, yes. It also has implicit application for us all. Well, in what way? Namely, love for Christ is visible. Love for Christ is observable. Peter says he loves Christ, and what does Christ do? He says, then go act. Then go express that love. Then go do something. In other words, a true love for Christ is always recognizable, and specifically so in the way that you 
love one another. The love for Christ is expressed in the giving of oneself for the benefit of another. And I'm not going to lie. It may be and oftentimes is costly. Loving people in the way that the Lord loves people doesn't mean that you're always going to be liked. Don't get me wrong. You love people well, you'll receive that love as well. But times it puts you in awkward, difficult situations that you have to speak up on behalf of God because you actually love the person who's before your very eyes. Loving one another can be costly. I thank God. I thank God for the love of Christ that the majority of this church has. And it's often expressed in the ways that you love one another. Some of you, maybe all of you would agree, if you're a member of this church, that it's been a hard season for us at Redeemed South Bay in some ways. Joyous but difficult. Loss of loved ones. Miscarriages, one after the other. Church discipline issues. Sickness and surgeries. You know what I see? As I sometimes take a step back and watch the people of God do the things of God, I see the love of Christ expressed in things such as the sending of flowers, such as the sending of meals, such as the sharing of tears, such as offering prayers one for another, such as opening up your home, such as rejoicing when it's a season to rejoice and mourning when it's a season to mourn. I trust, I trust that the majority of this church loves Christ in part because the majority of this church genuinely loves one another. And it's a love that isn't a human love. It's the kind of love that Jesus said, love one another and the world will know that you're my disciples. I encourage you to just do so more and more. To just do so more and more. Love for Christ is the first, the first virtue, which brings us to the second virtue that is increasingly recognizable in the life of a true disciple of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and that's obedience to Christ. Look with me, please, at verses 18 through 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned back and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also leaned back against him during the supper and, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among, abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Here in this text, Jesus solemnly prophesies about Peter's life by means of an illustration. 
In short, Jesus says that a younger people was able, a younger Peter was able to roam around freely doing whatever he wished, but that an older Peter would be taken by others and would be crucified. The phrase, you will stretch out your hands, would have been understood as a euphemism for crucifixion in the ancient world. But John makes it clear for his future readers, saying this, is, this he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. Jesus tells Peter the manner in which he will die, and John tells us why Peter will die in that way. Let's receive some hard truth to glorify God. That Peter's crucifixion was glorifying to God. We often recite 1 Corinthians 10, 31, which reads, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. Part of that whatever you do can and may very well be the manner in which you die. We can glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in every aspect of our life. Psalm 116 verse 15 says what? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And if you know that and if you believe that, you can live a different life. You can walk in whatever circumstances you're in with your head held high. And you can say and exclaim and proclaim along with the Apostle Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. Whatever comes, Lord, whatever comes, every aspect of my life is just another opportunity to bring you glory. Knowing that enables us, yes, to live, but yes, even to die unto the glory of God. And the church father Tertullian and the church historian Eusebius, they record that Peter was indeed crucified, that Jesus' prophecy did indeed come True, and some accounts say that he was crucified upside down. He was crucified in Rome, and it's John who says, yes, that death was to the glory of God. However, that death would be years later. Peter's initial response wasn't, let's do it. No. After telling Peter how he was going to die, Jesus said, follow me. He said, follow me. How about that? How would you feel? Hey, you're going to be crucified. Come along, follow me, and that's going to be the security for that crucifixion to happen. There's assurance if you follow me that you're going to be crucified. Be careful what you ask for. Some people, times people say, I, I wish I know how I was going to die. I don't. That's scary. For the rest of his life, he knew that at some point he was going to be crucified. Do we get that? Yet, he followed Christ. It's amazing. And this is what indicates for us that this isn't any manpower. This is the power of the living God at work within us that enables us to march forward following Christ. In no way, please understand me, in no way do I want to make light of Peter's literal crucifixion. But the fact of the matter is that this is Jesus' offer for every true disciple. 
It may not be a literal crucifixion, but it was Jesus who said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. It was Jesus who said, whoever does not bear his own Christ and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is the Christian life in view of the resurrected Lord, saints. This is what it is. If you're a Christian, you've signed up to die. And you're happy about it. It's a death of self. And it's a life following after the Lord Jesus Christ. God help us. God help me to glorify the Lord in every way, shape, and form. One commentator said this, obedience to Jesus' command, follow me, is the key issue in every Christian life. I love that. It's the key issue in every Christian's life. Often we're tempted not to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Rather, we are tempted to look to another disciple and see what they are up to. And initially, Peter gave in to that exact same temptation. Look what it says. Peter looked back and saw John following them and said, Lord, what about this guy? What about this man right here? After Jesus said to Peter, follow me, he turns around. They're presumably walking on the, the, the seashore. And he's like, how about him though, God? It's absurd. But you do it. Beloved, the command to follow the Lord Jesus Christ will never be accomplished by looking at anyone or anything other than Christ himself. So stop looking at your brothers and sisters in Christ. Stop wondering if the Lord loves them more, is more gracious towards them because their life looks so much prettier than yours. They have all the blessings and you receive all the cursings. The grass is always greener on the other side. Stop looking around and follow the Lord Jesus. But Peter's looking around. After all, John is the beloved disciple, isn't he? John is the one that's rested up on his chest at the Last Supper, isn't he? There seems to be a competition in Peter's mind. And so Peter wants to know, well, what are you going to call him to do if you're going to call me to crucifixion? And Jesus has an answer for Peter's inquiring mind. And these are the last words, by no mistake, that the Lord Jesus Christ utters in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus' rhetorical question serves as a rebuke. In other words, what Jesus does is he pretty much says, it's none of your business, Peter. We have the authority and the will of the Lord Jesus Christ on display here in the Greek Grammar of this verse indicates that it's extremely emphatic. He fronts the you and he fronts the me. You, singular you, 
Oftentimes in Scripture we see you, and it's a plural you, and I say silly things like, I wish we could speak southern y'all, that would give us the picture, but here it's not y'all. Here it's you, singular you, follow me. And the book of Acts shows us that Peter was ultimately obedient to Christ's command. Peter did follow Christ. But the Lord Jesus Christ says to you today, each and every one of you who is the true disciple in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says to you today, you follow me. And so the question is, will you follow Christ? Will you follow Christ? Have you decided to follow Jesus? Can you sing that simple but so profound song? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Oh, come on now. No turning, but go ahead, sing it now. Listen. Everything in me. This, this is the real deal, saint. Day by day, each and every moment, and day, day by day isn't good enough. Moment by moment, you must decide to deny yourself. God, help us. Deny ourselves and to take up whatever cross he causes you to bear and follow him. And follow him. The world behind me, the cross before me, though no one would follow, still I will. What to God, moment by moment, day by day, you decide to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's make it clear that the, the call to follow the Lord Jesus Christ is not a one-size-fits-all call. Yes, we follow the same Jesus. Amen. The Bible's not going to change. The doctrine's not going to change. Praise the Lord. We follow the same Christ, but inevitably the same Christ is going to call us down different paths, different trials, different tribulations, all fine-tuned for what purpose? That you might look more like Christ. He sees you. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows the situations you're in. Some of you are in terrible, difficult situations. Some of you are on cloud nine flying high. The Lord sees you and he knows and he says to you today, follow me. And trust and believe and all glory is to be seen. Obedience to Christ and his call to follow him is the second virtue, and this brings us to the third virtue that is increasingly recognizable in the life of a true disciple of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Very simply and very quickly, trust. Trust in Christ. The last two verses of the book. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. 
for every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In these two verses, John, the beloved disciple, establishes the human origin of the gospel so that his readers might trust in Christ. The, the beloved disciple declares that he is an authoritative eyewitness of these events. The beloved disciple declares that he is the human author of the gospel that we have read and worked through. The, the beloved disciple declares that his testimony is true. Well, that's what everyone says, right? I swear I'm telling the truth. Any of y'all who have kids, I swear I'm telling the truth. And then you start talking about consequences. Okay, if I find out that you're not, then you're going to have to. But if you tell me now, then, well, actually, Dad. <laughs> Listen, John did not die a martyr's death. We're told that he died in Ephesus toward the end of the first century, that he lived a long life. He was the only disciple to do that. But he suffered for his testimony. And his testimony never wavered. Consequence after consequence came. And he's saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. One consequence, look, look at Acts chapter 4. A few pages to the right. Peter and John get arrested. Later, the, the, the apostles get beaten because of their proclamation of the gospel. And you know what they do? They go home crying. No, they don't. They rejoice that they were counted worthy. And here we're told in chapter 4, in the face of persecution, the response of Peter and John. But Peter and John answered them, those questioning them, telling them to stop preaching Christ. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. John would later be exiled for his testimony of Christ, but he could not but speak of the things that he had seen and heard. He did these things. He wrote these things. He proclaimed these things in part so that you and I, generations later, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Oh, and by the way, he didn't tell us everything. John saw a lot more. John witnessed a lot more. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. One commentator said of this verse, the Jesus to whom the beloved disciple bears witness is the incarnate word, the one through whom the world was made. There is not enough space in the world to contain the words needed to make known the fullness of the word. Beloved, as you follow Jesus, just remember that he's greater than you can imagine. Your best thought, your highest hope of heaven not scratching the surface. We have enough here. We have enough here. Although this gospel does not say it all, we have enough here to trust in Christ. And this is the third virtue. This morning, 
we've seen three virtues. Three virtues that are increasingly recognizable in the life of a true disciple of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Love for Christ, obedience to Christ, trust in Christ. It is my prayer, and I trust all of our prayers, that these three virtues may be increasingly recognizable in our lives by means of the saving and enabling grace of the triune God such that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit receive all the honor and all the glory and all the adoration forever and ever until we see him face to face. Lord, would you help us please, would you help us please to follow Jesus? That's our simple prayer. That there would be no turning back. That we would march forward looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would follow him day by day, moment by moment receiving his word and responding rightly to it? Would we put the world behind us and would we press on even if that means the cross for us? Lord, even if none would go with us, would we, would we still follow? And Lord, we ask these things because you have made them possible. And so we pray that you would help us by means of the truth of your word, by means of your spirit. Be glorified in our life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.